Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So we are beginning today a whole new series of podcasts on the subject of money. I'm going to talk about uh, work, I'm going to talk about investments, not the technical side. I'm not a finance expert, but I want to talk a little bit about investments. I want to talk about planning for the future. I want to talk about a whole bunch of things which I'm afraid that I've not spent much time talking about in the past and may have contributed to a context uh, in the church at large in which these things aren't talked about, despite the fact that they're obviously really significant. Uh, they form a substantial part of our lives, and it's important to get a biblical picture about them. So we're going to jump straight into that in a moment or two. Before we do that, though, I want to just highlight uh, one other tweak that I want to make to the format of these uh, podcasts uh, in an attempt to just cover more ground and um, give you guys more things to think about. What I'd like to do, uh, at least today, and I'm going to try and do this in uh, future weeks as well, is before we get into the main bulk of what I want to talk about, I want to throw a little snippet of something. I don't know what we should call it. Should we call it a little um, pastoral nugget or something like that? Uh, something that has occurred to me during the week or that I think might be helpful that will only take a minute or two to share. And then we'll get into the bulk of what I want to talk about. And the, the little pastoral tidbit that I want to cast upon the waters this uh, on this occasion. Uh, I mentioned actually briefly at Wednesday night Bible study a few days ago, and it arises from Ezekiel 21. I've been reading through Ezekiel as well as a few other bits and pieces in my personal Bible reading in the last week or two. And um, in Ezekiel 21, uh, from about verse 8 uh, down to verse 12, uh, verse 13, um, the prophet makes uh well, speaks in the name of the Lord in quite a disturbing way. I'll read what he says, or parts of it, and then I'll explain what I have in mind. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say, a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice? You have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. So the sword is given to be polished that it may be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the princes of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Strike therefore upon your thigh. Okay, so Ezekiel 21, 8 through 12. Now, what's going on here and why do I think this is significant potentially for us? Well, uh, in these verses, the prophet uh, speaking in the name of the Lord is addressing the people of Israel as God's son. And he's highlighting that they have, in his words, despised the rod and that therefore the sword will be coming their way. Now, these two biblical images are really significant. The sword is, well, let's do this for a second. The rod is characteristically the instrument of gracious fatherly discipline and chastisement. It's mentioned numerous times in the Proverbs. Uh, it's mentioned, um, the, the themes connected with it are mentioned elsewhere in Hebrews, um, in connection with the loving discipline of a father who cares for his son. And the point here is that the rod is the, so to speak, the tool of discipline that a loving father uh, uses to bring his beloved child back on track when he strays from the path. All of our children do this, speaking to you as parents. Children, I'm speaking to you in particular. If you're a young person uh, still at home with your parents, it is perfectly normal for you to stray from the path into disobedience towards your parents. That's not to say that it's acceptable. It's never acceptable. And what you ought to be doing 
is paying attention to the rod, so to speak, of discipline. Now, I, I know there are various different ways um, about the uh, various different uh, ways in which the, the discipline takes shape in different families and so on. I'm not going to get into that discussion now, but the rod is a way of characterizing your father and your mother's love for you when it's manifested in those situations where like so many other young people so much of the time you stray from the path and that is normal but is absolutely disastrous if you don't respond to your parents discipline parents this is perhaps a word for you it's not a time to despair when your children stray from the path let's not despair about that but let's not neglect this loving gracious chastisement and disciplining of our children, the rod which is given to us to bring our children back on the path of godliness and faithfulness. And Ezekiel goes on to explain what's going to happen if a child rejects or despises that discipline. He's talking to, uh, in the name of the Lord, to Israel, the son, and remember what he says, you've despised the rod, so the sword is given to be polished. And the sword is not an instrument of fatherly chastisement. The sword is an instrument of wrath and vengeance, uh, whereas the sword is given to the father in the pro sorry the rod is given to the father in the book of Proverbs. The sword is given to the civil authorities to punish evil and bring vengeance in the name of the Lord upon unrepentant evildoers and those who commit crimes. And you notice the difference here. Um, what's being said to Israel is because you have rejected and despised loving, gracious, fatherly discipline on those occasions when you've needed to be chastised and brought back onto the straight now you've ignored that you've despised those words of love and care and discipline therefore the time has come when it will no longer be the father with his loving rod but some angel, a, agent of vengeance with the sword who will come against you and the simple truth is that what's played out here in israel's history will be played out in the lives of individual young people who despise the rod of their parents' discipline. And that sword may come in various forms. It may actually come through the vengeance of the civil authorities. Think of the imagery of the sword in Romans 13. It may come in other forms. It may come in the context of uh, work environments or other social settings where people are a lot less loving and a lot less forgiving than your parents. And so to you young people, what I want to say is this, don't miss out on the opportunity to be shaped by the loving discipline of your parents while you're young. Don't despise the rod. Don't become resentful of them. They're doing their best. Well, they ought to be. <laughs> and the, the danger for you is very great if you come to resent and despise what they're trying to do as they seek to nurture and raise you as faithful believers. Because you don't have an infinite number of years left to learn what they're trying to teach you. Don't get to the point where the people of Israel got in Ezekiel 21 when the Lord said, you've despised the rod for long enough and now it's time for the sword. So something I think, um, it's one of those examples where the, the words of the prophet speak so loudly and clearly, not just to Israel in those historical terms, but also to us personally. I hope that's helpful. Okay, so I said, I want to get on in the bulk of um, today's podcast, coffee time, bear with me a second, to talk about finances. Um, and money and investments and so on and work and all the things that are associated with basically making a living earning a crust as um, my uh, grandparents used to say in the north of England um, and it, this arose really I was asked to uh, contribute to the teaching at Gloria Sancta which is a uh, 
a camp for uh, young people, uh, young adults, 18 to 30 or so, uh, the beginning of January. And Pastor Randy Booth said uh, to myself and the other speakers, we're four of us doing um, one session of teaching each. He said to us, I'd like you to speak on the subject of investments for your future. And I was moving, musing about what to talk about. And clearly, Pastor Booth meant this metaphorically. He was thinking in various ways in which different aspects of our lives constitute investments for the future. But it suddenly struck me that there might be some value in taking this literally and actually in speaking about investments for the future and thinking about work and thinking about financial productivity and financial planning and all these kinds of things. Because I'd never heard anybody speak about that from a Christian point of view. I had some dim dimly remembered uh, and somewhat ill-formed ideas about the kinds of things that scripture says. I mean, we all know kind of famous Bible verses about money and so on, but I wanted to try and take the opportunity to build a more coherent and complete picture of what the Bible says about how we should plan for our financial well-being. And so I did, and it was really interesting. The the um, uh, the feedback was, was quite positive, and I was encouraged, uh, not just from the young people, but actually one or two of the other guys who were there, um, pastors who were there teaching, said, you know, confessed that, like me, they hadn't really taught much, if at all, about this subject. And I thought, therefore, it might be worthwhile just to bring this out into the open so that we can have a conversation about it now. So I'm going to set some things before you. I'm going to say a few of the things that I said to those young people just um, to introduce the subject, and then we're going to start uh, working through some of the preliminary biblical considerations, and then we'll con continue our conversation uh, next time around, and we'll get to some of the nitty-gritty of it. So the first thing I did when I was talking to these young folks was just to try and draw their attention to some of the actual real-world complexities they're likely to face, and I set before them some scenarios, some sample scenarios, and I think it might be interesting and perhaps a little bit amusing to set them before you as well and um, just see what you think of them. So uh, and then I ask some questions about each of them and I'll put the same questions before you as well. So here's the first scenario. I won't go through all of the scenarios that I, I gave, but the first couple might be interesting for us. So here's the first one. John buys a laptop in the post-Christmas sales and enthusiastically accepts the offer of a new credit card issued by the store that gives him 20% off the original purchase price of $1,500. He checks the minimum payment each month box on the application form and heads home very pleased with himself. Okay, so that's the scenario. He's managed to get 20% off a laptop, would have been $1,500, now it's only $1,200. Good job, John. So here are the questions. And I wasn't asking the young people to calculate this in their head. I was just trying to get a sense of what they thought the figures would be. Here's the first question I asked. Assuming the annual interest rate and the minimum payment are about average for credit cards, so right now that's about 21% interest per year, $20 a month minimum payment, how long will it take John to finish paying for the laptop? And we had estimates of, um, you know, uh, five years, six years, 10 years. Um, the actual answer is 17 years and one month, which caused a few jaws to drop and hit the floor. And when I asked how much would the laptop eventually cost him, well, the actual answer is $4,080. So, so much for the bargain at $1,200. If he just checked minimum payment each month and forgot about the interest rate at 21%, he'd have been paying more than three times over the odds for that laptop, which is a little bit nerve-wracking. So then I asked another question. I said, how much difference would it make if the interest rate were 1% higher? Suppose instead of being 21%, it was 22%. Now, what difference could 1% make? And so we had, again, I wasn't asking people to do the calculations formally on a spreadsheet or something, which is kind of in keeping with reality, because, hey, whoever goes home and does the calculations on a spreadsheet, maybe you do, but 
all but two or three of the young people I was speaking to wouldn't even know how to begin doing those calculations on a spreadsheet. So that's actually salutary in itself. So I said, how much difference would it make if the interest rate were 1% higher? And a couple of people thought, yeah, that 1% might make a fairly big difference. Somebody put his hand up bravely, said maybe $6,000 or something. I forget the number he quoted. Well, of course, um, the answer is a little bit more disturbing than that. If the interest rate were 22% instead of 21%, in that particular scenario, John would never get to pay his laptop off. Because the initial monthly payment, assuming mon uh, interest is calculated monthly and then uh, grossed up over the year to 20% interest annually, the initial monthly payment would have been $20.05. And uh, sorry, the initial monthly interest would have been $20.05. And the initial payment would only have been $20, which would mean that you'd never actually pay off the interest. The total amount would keep accumulating over time. You'd never pay it down. It would just keep going up and up and up. And up. So assuming that John made this purchase at the age of 25, by the time he got to 90, he would have paid a total of about $15,600 for this laptop. But he would still owe $1,227,889.58. And the interest each month added to the total that he owed would be just a little over $20,000. And it sounds like a ridiculous and the kind of scenario that would never come to pass. And I hope it never would. I mean, when, when you actually look at the numbers, you think you'd kind of notice an, the accumulation of a million dollars or more on your credit card bill. Uh, you'd hope the credit card company might point it out. You'd hit your limit eventually. But something at the more mild end of that spectrum is not apparently altogether impossible to imagine because there was some research done uh, in the UK um, a few years ago among uh, young people, asking them about their credit card habits. And it turns out that over half of the young people surveyed in that particular context didn't even know that their credit cards charged interest. And again, there were a couple of blank faces around the room of 20-somethings that I was speaking to um, in early January, which made me think that that scenario wasn't entirely wasted uh, as something to highlight some of the problems that people might run into. So there's a negative scenario which highlights the need for careful financial planning. Here's a positive scenario which highlights the opportunities of careful financial planning on the positive side. Jenny gets her first part-time job at the age of 16, babysitting for a neighbor for two or three hours, a couple of nights a week at $10 an hour. At 18, she starts working a couple of eight hour shifts every week at Chick-fil-A, earning $12 an hour. She consistently saves about half her earnings. Now that's not at all unreasonable. Right? I remember having a, a slightly more irregular babysitting job when I was a kid. Um, from about the age of 14, I think, I was babysitting for a neighbor who was uh, in the military. He was uh, in the Air Force, Royal Air Force. And he and his wife used to have to go to these really extravagant balls that lasted until two in the morning because he was quite a senior officer. So I got to basically go and watch movies in their front room for eight hours and they paid me very generously for it. And so it's not at all implausible, is it, that somebody would get a job like that in their late teens and then work at a coffee shop or Chick-fil-A or something. Okay, so here's the question. If she consistently saves about half her earnings at those two jobs, how much would she have accumulated by the age of 22? And the math here is much easier, much easier. Um, the answer is she'd have earned about $7,800 from the babysitting and nearly $20,000 from working at Chick-fil-A. So those two jobs, saving only half of what you're earning, because you've got plenty of other expenses like your expensive mobile phone and everything else, you could save 
almost $28,000 in the space of five or six years, by the age of 22, you could have a good chunk of what you'd need to make as a down payment on a house in your early 20s, just by careful saving and planning from your teenage years onwards. And if you had managed to accumulate more, perhaps through investing it in your dad's S&P 500 tracker or something, um, well, there'd be more uh, uncertainty in the rate of return and so on. But if you had done averagely well for the last few decades, um, then just in those years, you could have accumulated another few thousand dollars. Um, now, whether that would be advisable if you needed the cash at that short-term time horizon, well, that's a more complex question of the kind that I'm not going to get into. But uh, suffice it to say that clearly saving accumulates over time a significant amount of resources, financial resources, which open up meaningful, valuable opportunities that we as Christians would want to have. And wouldn't it be wonderful to have those in your early 20s? I looked around the room, again, these young adults, 20, 22, 24 years old, and the thought that they could already, if they had been careful and had jobs a little bit like this for the last six, eight years, have accumulated tens of thousands of dollars in savings, setting them up for whatever future the Lord had in store for them. It was really quite salutary for them, I think. And I wonder whether it might also be quite salutary for some of our children as well, if we are able to help them to think through these issues. And how many of us also would benefit from just thinking through the mathematics of um, some of these, the, the real practicalities of saving to provide for ourselves. And I'm very conscious in saying this, that many of you will have done so. Certainly, I am absolutely no financial guru. One of the young people um, who was at the um, the conference the, for Gloria Sancta came up to me after the talk and asked me for some stock tips. And they're like, well, I'm absolutely not going to give you any advice like that. I am the last person on earth who will be giving advice about um, what to buy on the stock market. I'm I'm, you need to get professional advice from somebody you trust whose investment philosophy matches with the best of what you can find in scripture, rather than just getting some stock tips from a pastor who's trying to sow the seeds of some of these thoughts. But on that subject, it does um, uh, it is important for us just to turn to scripture and start thinking, okay, how should we formulate a biblical theology of money and wealth and earning and investment and financial planning and so on. And that's really what I want to spend the next, let's, let's give it 10 minutes or so maybe of this podcast, just laying some of the groundwork work for. And I want to begin uh, in a way I think it's probably necessary to begin. As soon as you start talking about money, we have to recognize that in scriptural terms, uh, there are a great many warnings, caveats, about the dangers of wealth. And so before we start thinking about the opportunities and the positive steps we ought to take, uh, we need to safeguard ourselves against those kinds of uh, dangers by hearing as clearly as we can what scripture says negatively about wealth. So let me just give you a few thoughts about that to start off with, and then we'll see where we end up. I think you could categorize the dangers of money according to the scriptures in a number of different ways. But there are three or four different dangers that I think you could very easily identify, or at least caveats you'd want to raise about money. Here's the first. Wealth is seductive. There's something about money, there's something about the accumulation of uh, wealth, which has the capacity to draw us away from the living God. And you just think about 
the Tenth Commandment, for example, which specifically forbids covetousness, thus recognizing that right at the heart of the life of the people of God, one of the ten big things we have to get clear in our minds is the, the vital importance of not desiring, longing for things that belong to other people. Don't cover your neighbor's house or your neighbor's ox or your neighbor's wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Uh, the Apostle Paul highlights a similar kind of temptation in 1 Timothy 6. Let me read a couple of verses to you. Those who desire to be rich, he says, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, for some folks, just hearing words like that is enough to make them think they never want anything to do with money ever again. And it's easy to understand why. I think, unfortunately, the difficulty is that's a, a misreading of this text. I mean, look at what Paul actually says the problem is. It's those who desire to be rich, senseless and harmful desires. It's the love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evils. It's this craving for money through which many have wandered away from the faith. So it's not that money itself is a problem, but we nonetheless, before we start thinking about wealth and finances and planning, all, all those sorts of things, we need to hear <clears throat> what um, these words say. We need to hear them really clearly. Jesus adds to them, of course, um, in Mark 4, not adding chronologically, but in, adds another element to the picture, uh, a, a warning that we might not easily perceive how these desires are taking hold of us. Think about what he says in Mark 4 when he warns about the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things which enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Notice what he's saying there, the deceitfulness of riches is one of the things that chokes the seed of the word so it doesn't grow up and bear fruit. So you could be aware of this danger of ungodly desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction and still not be protected entirely against it. That's the character of the deceitfulness of sin, that it can lead us into it without our even realising that we're going there. And even when we think we're being safeguarded against it. So wealth is seductive. And anything that we do or say or plan needs to be coupled with kind of prayerful watchfulness of our hearts and our desires so it doesn't become the one thing that takes over. Second, uh, scripture warns that money, however much or little of it you have, can be a great source of anxiety. I'm thinking of Solomon's words here in Ecclesiastes 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. And that's just exactly the kind of profoundly insightful words that we've come to expect from Solomon, isn't it? That um, even uh, if you have a great deal of it, if you have a love for it, you'll never be satisfied with it. He who loves money will never be satisfied with wealth, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Uh, and uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, the great Puritan preacher, highlighted this he wrote a wonderful little book called the, the rare jewel of christian contentment and it's striking that he called it a rare jewel uh, lack of contentment is the the danger that solomon in ecclesiastes 5 is drawing attention to uh, think about what he, again what paul says to T timothy there's great gain in godliness with contentment for we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of it 
If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And so there is this strong biblical focus on whatever you're going to do about planning for your future and providing for yourself and providing for the wife that you don't yet know and uh, because you've not yet met her because you're only 16 years old or whatever it is, um, uh, and, and making sure you're not a burden on other people. All the time, we have to be watching carefully against the danger of longing simply for the accumulation of wealth. And it's going to be tricky because one of the things that we're going to have to do if we are to provide responsibly for ourselves is to seek the accumulation of financial resources. That's just another way of saying saving for the future. It's wise to provide for yourself and for your children. If you don't think that that's wise, then really what you're saying is it's wise not to plan, which means that somebody else is going to have to provide for you. So clearly that's not responsible. But on the other hand, we've got to find a way of doing that such that we're not driven by this craven covetousness that is continually lusting for more. Third thing to point out, and this probably is the most important of all, um, Whatever we say about the importance of money, wealth, having enough to provide for yourself and for your family and to give to others and to provide for those who are dependent on you, money is not the most important thing. Godliness is the most important thing. Growth in Christian maturity is the most important thing. Jesus is, uh, to not put it too crudely, the most important thing. Um, and this is all over the book of Proverbs. It's all over the scriptures. Um, uh, whatever I have, I consider lost that I may gain, may gain Christ. And Paul is thinking of not only his um, Jewish heritage there, but all the privileges and honours that come with it. Uh, I'm just, I was struck as I was preparing for Gloria Sancta with these uh, young adults by the, the number of proverbs that specifically call attention to this. Uh, proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Whoever, this is uh, 11.28, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And then the kind of practical nitty gritty, Proverbs 17, 1, better, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. We have much we want to provide for our children and for their education and to try and set them up in life in the future. Uh, you don't want to have the kind of family that's got a vast house and all the kind of beautiful furniture and all the vacations everywhere. And whenever anybody goes on vacation or whenever anyone's in the house together, there's uh, grumpiness and strife and all your family meals are this beautiful food around your wonderful marble top table and your leather sofa. And everyone is sort of suddenly gazing at their smartphones because none of them really want to be anywhere near each other. It'd be much better to have a bowl of soup around uh, a busted up table you picked up for $10 at a thrift store than with joy and uh, gladness and warmth of relationship than to have all the money in the world and that kind of brokenness in your family. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, Proverbs says, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel, Proverbs 20.15. Again, their knowledge, which in the book of Proverbs has to do with much more than just knowing facts about the world. It's the, the insight and the, the character of a wise person. That's precious. And many more. Um, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. How much better to get wisdom than gold? I mean, it couldn't be clearer, could it? Proverbs 16, 16. Like if you have a choice, wisdom or gold, well, get wisdom, obviously, because it's better. And wisdom in the book of Proverbs is found characteristically in the greater Solomon, the greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Uh, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favour is better than silver or gold. If your riches cost you your reputation because they're obtained through ungodliness and so on and so forth, well, you, the good name that you've lost is worth far more than the riches that you've gained. And most strongly, I think almost, Proverbs 30 verses 7 to 9, two things I ask of you, deny them to me, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. That's the first thing. Don't make me a liar. Make me truthful, man of integrity. And give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And that's really striking. Give me neither poverty nor riches. And I think if you were to summarise where I want to go with the practical planning um, uh, of our financial future and your uh, careers and um, all the ways in which you try and provide for yourself and for your children, perhaps particularly in the that later stages of our lives where it's less likely we're going to be able to work uh, for money so so much of much of the time. Um, my aim is not so that you can get really rich. Like that's just not the goal. The aim is so that you will be able to provide for yourself and to, prov and to provide for others, whether those are people who are dependent on you, your immediate family and others, or whether it's uh, generously giving to people who are not in your family, uh, whether in, a, in your church or in a broader, the broader Christian world or, or in all the other ways in which it's possible through uh, the gifts that God has given us to be a blessing to other people. In other words, this, the, the focus of all that I say about uh, planning to earn in the future, please, please, please don't mishear it as Pastor Jeffrey telling me how to get rich. It's Pastor Jeff Jeffrey helping me, hopefully, to think biblically about how to take on our responsibilities to provide for ourselves and to give to others. So that not only we, but also other people have neither poverty nor riches. They have the food that is needful for them. And if it turns out that when you are uh, uh, making your way down the later years of your life and the Lord has blessed you because of the work you've done and the savings you've been able to accumulate. Well, the Lord bless you. And may he continue to give you that blessing so that you're able to share it with other people. Okay, so all those caveats um, out of the way, I hope we can now uh, see the road cleared to think positively about what scripture says concerning the value of wealth. And we're not going to start that this time. Uh, we've gone on half an hour or so, and so we'll call it a halt here. But we'll start next week thinking first about all the positive things that scripture says about actually having accumulated wealth and savings and earning well and having a job which provides well for us. Think about some of the positive things the Bible says about that. And then we'll start to think about some of the biblical, uh, the practical teaching of scripture, really, which uh, by which the Lord will guide us towards being able to provide for ourselves and provide for others in the kind of way that I've indicated. But for now, I think that'll do us. Uh, the Lord bless you. Take care. And I hope very much to see you soon. Bye for now.